Today shows the final chapter of the press versus the president, what they did to Trump and all the rest of us. Also, is Joe Biden a Chinese spy? Find out on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the voice of the resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 338 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Saturday, February 4th, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, the theme of today's show is the final chapter of the press versus the president, what they did to Trump and all the rest of us. The final chapter is coming up in just a moment. But first, we recently found out the Chinese sent a spy balloon into U.S. airspace to do surveillance over many of our military installations, including our ICBM nuclear weapons sites in Montana. The mainstream media widely reported our government had been tracking the spy balloon for several months ever since it left mainland China. Our Defense Department tracked it closely as it went across the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, This is the language our Defense Department used. The Chinese spy balloon illegally penetrated American airspace to do surveillance of our military installations. When asked why we didn't just shoot down the spy balloon sent by our adversary, Communist China, to surveil our military installations all across our country, the military spokesman responded they were concerned about danger to people on the ground from falling debris if they shot it down. Okay, no one believes this. As the governor of Montana, Greg Gianforte, recently told Tucker Carlson over at Fox News Channel, eastern Montana is very sparsely populated. There would be almost no danger to people on the ground by shooting down China's spy balloon. As a matter of fact, I checked... And a lot of eastern Montana has an average of less than one person per square mile. The same is true of Alaska's Aleutian Islands. For that matter, if we had shot down the Chinese spy balloon once it entered our national boundaries over water, like the Bering Sea or the Gulf of Alaska, there's no way it would have endangered any American citizens. So again, no one believes the official excuse the Biden regime offered us. So our mortal enemy... Communist China, the land of forced abortions, the land of state-sanctioned murder of political prisoners by harvesting their organs, is running roughshod 
over the territorial integrity of the United States of America. They are showing us who's boss. They are reinforcing the idea that they own Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Do you find it odd that we have sent over $100 billion to one of the most corrupt countries in the world, Ukraine, with no accountability, and we're soon going to be sending American servicemen to Ukraine in an attempt to start a war with a nuclear power, Russia? But on the other hand, communist China invades our airspace, and we're too afraid to do anything about it? And now there's another one over Latin America that is apparently headed our way. Now, the timing of this whole situation is very interesting. A few days ago, the Columbia Journalism Review published the definitive account of the mainstream media's intentional slander of Donald Trump. And I'm going to be sharing with you the fourth and final chapter in just a few moments. But to this day, many in the mainstream media still say Trump is a Russian asset. So millions of Americans believe it, even though it has been roundly debunked, thoroughly disproven, it doesn't matter. The true believers in the Trump-Russia fraud are immovable, unshakable in their faith that orange man is indeed bad. By the way, it is a matter of record that the communist Chinese government has given the Bidens a huge amount of money. It is a matter of record that Joe's son Hunter accompanied his dad when Joe was vice president on Air Force Two to communist China to score a $1.5 billion, with a B, dollar business loan from communist China. If you don't understand that Joe Biden is totally compromised and controlled by communist China, and he won't lift a finger to stop them from taking over our country, I can't help you. Well, maybe I can. I have a short article about Biden being a communist Chinese asset before we get to part four of the press versus the president from the Columbia Journalism Review. But suffice it to say, Trump has never been a Russian asset. But Biden has been a communist Chinese asset for many years. Now, of course, this would not be happening. The Chinese spy balloon, the communist Chinese spy balloon, drifting over the mainland of the USA for eight days. Of course, you know this would not be happening if Trump was still president. For that matter, China would not have been allowed to invade our airspace during the administration of any former president, living or dead. Barack Hussein Obama himself would never have allowed this. You know that. That's how bad this is. So on Saturday, we exploded the balloon over the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of South Carolina. That's right. Biden waited until the Chinese spy balloon took more than a week to go all the way across the continental United States, get all the surveillance, all the intelligence they wanted to. And once the CHICOMs got everything they wanted, all the surveillance the commies could have hoped for. And the balloon was now safely out at sea 
Did he have it blown out of the sky? So whatever equipment was in the balloon went to the bottom of the ocean. So now we'll never know what information on the U.S. it collected for our enemies. Now, Fox News is reporting that U.S. Representative Joe Wilson, Republican in South Carolina, you remember the guy that said, you lie, when Barack Obama was doing a State of the Union address? He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. He said Saturday, Joe Wilson said, the Chinese spy balloon saga confirmed both Biden and Kamala Harris should resign from office. Joe Wilson's calls for Biden and Harris to resign came hours after the U.S. fighter jet shot down the Chinese spy balloon off the coast of the lawmaker's home state of South Carolina. In a tweet, Joe Wilson said, the catastrophic Chinese spy balloon spectacle clearly threatened American families from Alaska to my home community in South Carolina and confirms Biden and Harris should resign. My call for the resignation was valid in August 2021 due to the surrender and disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan, creating a safe haven for terrorists to attack American families. South Carolina lawmaker added, it was not political in 2021 when the succeeding president, then Speaker Nancy Pelosi, would have been a Democrat, or now in 2023 with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican. It is irrelevant for American families which party is in power because the first criteria of a leader should be their capability, regardless of party, and sadly, Biden and Harris are failures. Okay, unfortunately, for Joe Wilson, I I, I, got to push back here against the last thing he said. It is entirely relevant which party the president is a member of. Biden and Harris may be failures to you and me, but their party loves them. The Democrat Party is all about turning our country over to our enemies. Okay, before we get to part four of the press versus the president, Columbia Journalism Review, I have a brief article from American Greatness, amgreatness.com, by the great Lloyd Billingsley called Biden's China Spy Scandal. This is dated Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. He says, Joe Biden is taking heat for the classified documents he stashed at his home and garage. Though well worthy of attention, as Victor Davis Hansen notes, the documents scandal has overshadowed Biden's indulgence of Chinese spies on full display. In a recent case, the Epoch Times reports federal prosecutors in Brooklyn have dropped their case against a New York Police Department officer who had been accused of acting as a foreign agent on behalf of the Chinese regime. 33-year-old Beimadaji Angwang, an ethnic Tibetan and naturalized U.S. citizen, was arrested in 2020 for acting as an agent of Beijing for wire fraud, making false statements, and obstructing an official proceeding. Prosecutors charged that Ang Wang reported on Chinese citizens, cultivated intelligence sources, and connected Chinese officials with senior contacts 
in the New York Police Department. The U.S. Attorney's Office of the Eastern District of New York recently filed a motion asking federal judge Eric R. Comity, a Trump nominee, to dismiss the indictment due to what they called additional information. The Eastern District did not reveal the information or explain its relevance to the case. The move illuminates official Biden policy towards Chinese espionage in the United States. CBS News reported last year the Justice Department is ending a controversial program launched under the Trump administration to hunt down Chinese spies. Now, why would that be controversial? Sounds like a pretty good idea to me. Controversial for Democrats, maybe. Maybe Eric Swalwell, who dated the Chinese spy, thinks it's controversial. Anyway, I digress. President Trump's China initiative targeted China's theft of trade secrets and intellectual property. As federal prosecutors charged in 2017... MIT professor Gang Chen failed to disclose ties to China and failed to disclose a foreign bank account on a tax document. Prosecutors dropped the case against Gang Chen, but it wasn't clear what motivated them to act. This was hardly the only proceeding against Chinese agents the Justice Department chose to abandon in 2020. Federal officials changed. Okay, that's got to be a typo. In 2020, federal officials charged that Chinese national Tang Wan lied about ties to the Chinese military in order to gain access to the University of California at Davis. The FBI found an April 14, 2019 article on a Zhan China healthcare forum that showed Tang Wan in a military uniform bearing the insignia of the civilian cadres of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, the PLA. The FBI also found two other articles listing Tang Wan's employer as the People's Liberation Army's Air Force Medical University, the AFMU, also known as the 4th Military Medical University, the FMMU. According to court documents, Tang was part of a PLA operation to send military scientists to the United States with false covers or false statements about their true employment. Military superiors in China gave the spies the task of copying and stealing information from American institutions. Tang Wan also emerged in the visa fraud case of Song Chen. According to July 20, 2020, Court documents, an active duty People's Liberation Army military scientist who lied to get into the United States, attempted to destroy evidence, and lied extensively to the FBI when interviewed. The documents also cite someone called Wang Jin, a visiting researcher at the University of California in San Francisco, arrested on charges of visa fraud. Wang was, in fact, an active-duty member in the PLA at a level that roughly corresponded with the level of major in the United States. Wang had emailed UCSF Research 
to his PLA laboratory, and a supervisor in China gave Wang the task of observing and documenting the layout of the UCSF lab to replicate it when he returned to China. The court documents refer to Tang Wan, also in the United States, on a J-1 visa. So was a Chinese national, identified as LT, who gained access to Duke University despite affiliations with the PLA General Hospital and PLA Medical Academy. Americans have cause to wonder why the visas were granted in the first place. A simple Internet search turned up PLA and CCP ties for Tang Wan and others now facing charges. The court documents do not reveal which U.S. government officials granted the visas and what they knew when they approved Chinese nationals with PLA and Chinese Communist Party ties, otherwise known as the CCP. In July 2021, federal prosecutors suddenly dropped the charges against Tang Wan and five Chinese nationals. The Justice Department did not reveal any exculpatory information in Tang's case or any mistakes by the FBI in tying her to China's military. This special treatment for Chinese spies traces back to the time Joe Biden, quote, got China, unquote. What does that mean? I'll tell you. Vice President Biden gained command of China policy through the efforts of longtime supporter Tom Donilon. D-O-N-I-L-O-N. Who would serve as National Security Advisor under President Obama. Now, Tom Donilon sees no conflict between a rising power and an established power and contends that a deeper U.S.-China military-to-military dialogue is central to addressing many of the sources of insecurity and potential competition between us. In 2020, Biden went on record that the Chinese are, quote, not bad folks, unquote, and not even competition for the United States. The Delaware Democrat thus provided more evidence that China, quote, got Biden, unquote. President Trump set out to stop Chinese espionage, but Trump derangement syndrome bars retention of any Trump policy, however successful. The Biden Justice Department drops the cases of Chinese spies with little, if any, exculpatory evidence. As the people should know, the Delaware Democrat is hardly the only collaborator with China's communist regime. Chinese spy Christine Fong, dubbed Poon Fong by Rush Limbaugh, raised money for the 2014 election campaign of California Democrat Eric Swalwell. He faithfully parroted Chinese propaganda and was romantically involved with the Chinese agent who aided his campaign. Even so, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi kept Swalwell on the Intelligence Committee. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat California, maintained a Chinese spy on her staff for 20 years. He was billed as her driver. This Chinese agent served in Feinstein's San Francisco office as a liaison to the Asian-American community and even attended Chinese consulate functions for the senator. Many questions remain. 
What information exactly did the spy pass on to China? Why did Feinstein allow the spy to retire rather than fire him? Why were no charges filed against an agent of a hostile foreign power working for a United States senator? Did Feinstein and her husband profit from policies the senator supported? And so on. In April 2020, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt filed a lawsuit charging that Chinese communist officials were responsible for enormous death, suffering, and economic losses from the COVID pandemic. Senator Feinstein took China's side, branding the lawsuit very, very dangerous and a huge mistake. The California Democrat also praised China as a trading partner and, quote, a country that has pulled tens of millions of people out of poverty in a short period of time, unquote. Feinstein said China was, quote, growing into a respectable nation among other nations, and I deeply believe that, unquote. Now, the FBI conducted no sudden raids on the residences of Diane Feinstein or Eric Swalwell, and the Justice Department has not launched an investigation into their ties with agents of China's communist regime. When the FBI does manage to catch Chinese spies, the Biden Justice Department dismisses their cases and the Biden IRS lends a hand on other fronts. The Confucius Institutes are a front group for the CCP, present on many U.S. college campuses. President Trump demanded that the institutes register as a foreign mission. But the Biden junta allows them to function as a registered 501c3 nonprofit with the IRS. High-ranking members of the U.S. military also betray a cooperative side. Joint Chiefs boss General Mark Milley is willing to tip off China about what's coming down. Remember that? Towards the end of Trump's term, when he told his counterpart in the Chinese military, hey, don't worry, if Trump decides to uh, launch nukes or anything, I'll call you before we do it. The people have to wonder how Milley will respond in the face of actual hostile action from China, which already has key assets already deployed stateside. China's communist regime operates police stations in New York City, in L.A., and other American cities. And as Beimadaji Angwang shows, Chinese agents function within American police departments. This is a clear breach of American territorial and judicial sovereignty far beyond anything the Soviet Union was ever able to achieve. But you know what? Joe Biden is fine with all of it. As he made clear in his September 1 hate speech, Biden sees the greatest threat from people who want America to be great, not from a genocidal communist dictatorship in China. So no surprise that the Chinese communists act like they own the place. Because they do. The Biden junta is shaping up as a Chinese-occupied government with Joe Biden the chief cog. Chinese-occupied government, COG, cog, with Joe Biden the chief cog. If anybody thought that was more serious than the classified document scandal, it would be hard to blame them. 
All right, I just felt it was my duty to share that with you. Coming up straight ahead will be part four of Jeff Girth's blockbuster, his tour de force at the Columbia Journalism Review, The Press versus the President. Part four is entitled Helsinki and the $3,000 Russian Disinformation Campaign. And that is next. All right, if you tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental U.S., redriverauto.com. You will be glad you did. Now, as you know, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everybody get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating my pillow, the best pillow ever. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great, they feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams bed sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams bed sheets. You can get a, a set of Giza sheets for as low as twenty nine ninety eight. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98 just by using promo code DWS. And right now, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98. In this economy, instead of buying a new bed, rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles, like plush, Waffle or Gossamer for as low as twenty nine ninety eight. Get huge discounts on duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Use that promo code DWS and you'll get huge discounts on all my pillow bedding, including my pillow Giza Dreams sheets for just twenty nine ninety eight. Now I'm wearing my new my slippers moccasins even as we speak. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. Right now, save up to ninety dollars on my slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins, marked down to just forty-nine ninety-eight by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals and slides for as low as nineteen ninety-eight. What makes my slippers different is Mike's exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. 
My Slippers patented layers make them ultra comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. Wear them anytime, anywhere. Just use promo code DWS. And remember, that does not stand for Debbie Washerman Schultz. No, 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 no. It stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com and MyStore.com, where all kinds of other things are available. But make sure you use that promo code DWS to get the deals. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices. So please order now. Use promo code DWS at MyPillow.com and MyStore.com. All right, Jeff Girth. Columbia Journalism Review, Part 4, the fourth and final chapter of the press versus the president, the definitive account of the mainstream media's campaign to get this guy. Chapter 4, entitled Helsinki and the $3,000 Russian Disinformation Campaign. And it begins, Trump, in July 2018, finally had a summit meeting with Vladimir Putin, the man he mistakenly claims in 2015 to have met years earlier, and his supposed puppet master, according to Christopher Steele's dossier. In advance of the summit, Trump met with his national security advisor, John Bolton, to discuss how to deal with Russian meddling. Bolton wrote in his 2020 memoir, The Room Where It Happened, the president remained unwilling or unable to admit any Russian meddling because he believed doing so would undercut the legitimacy of his election and the narrative of the witch hunt against him. At a press briefing, the final question was whether U.S. intelligence or Putin should be believed with regard to meddling in the 2016 election. After going on a tangent about the server at the DNC, Trump said, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia that did it. Then a bit later in his answer, he expressed, quote, great confidence in my intelligence people, unquote. The first remark received all the attention about, I don't see why it would be Russia. Some outlets, like the New York Times, didn't include his comments about great confidence in U.S. intelligence in their stories, while others, such as the Washington Post, did. Trump flew home to Washington, and when aides talked to him the next day about the reaction, he said he meant the opposite. A clarification was released, but the cleanup was not enough for critics such as Roger Cohen, then a columnist in the New York Times, who wrote of the, quote, disgusting spectacle of the American president kowtowing in Helsinki to Vladimir Putin, unquote. Rachel Maddow, the MSNBC host, saw the day's events as affirmation of her having covered the Trump-Russia matter, quote, more than anyone else, unquote, because as her blog pointed out, Americans were now, quote, coming to grips with a worst-case scenario that the U.S. president is compromised by a hostile foreign power, unquote. Gee, I wonder what she's saying about Biden these days. But I digress. For his part, Trump, when asked about the Helsinki meeting in my interview, blasted Bolton. 
He said, Bolton was one of the dumber people, but I loved him for the negotiations because all these countries, aware of Bolton's hawkish views, thought we were going to blow them up when Bolton sat in on the negotiations. Bolton declined to comment. Trump insisted to me that while, quote, I said nice things, unquote, about Putin, quote, I killed them with Nord Stream, unquote. The German-Russian pipeline his administration sanctioned in 2019 until, quote, Biden comes in and approves it, unquote. The Biden administration waived sanctions on the project in May 2021, and then after Russia invaded Ukraine, reinstated the sanctions. I tried to ask Trump what he thought about Russia's nuclear capabilities. His former aides have publicly and privately said he was fixated on Moscow's nuclear arsenal, including the large number of Russian nuclear weapons targeting the U.S., but Trump demurred, implying it involved classified information and talked instead about his deceased uncle, who was a professor of engineering at MIT and did some research related to nuclear energy. Finally, when asked about his remarks to Helsinki that were seen by many as denigrating the American intelligence community, Trump didn't say he had misspoken, as Kellyanne Conway in her 2022 memoir says he told her. Instead, he clarified his initial remarks in a different way. Trump said he wasn't thinking of the entire intelligence community, but rather his distrust of James Clapper, John Brennan, and James Comey, the former heads of the various intelligence agencies under President Obama. He said these guys were terrible people. Well, you can't argue with that, can you? But I digress. After Kellyanne Conway's book came out, I asked Trump again about his remarks, and he doubled down. He said I was disparaging them. Who would trust more? Who would I trust more? Comey, Clapper, Brennan, and the American sleaze, or Putin? I don't think we needed too much of a clarification. In the aftermath of the summit, Trump's critics believed the worst. A poll from YouGov and The Economist found that two-thirds of Democrats were definitely or somewhat sure that Russia tampered with vote tallies in order to get Donald Trump elected. Well, see, that's weird because Obama, when he's still president, said that would be impossible. Anyway, despite the U.S. intelligence community's assessment in January 2017 that it couldn't measure the impact that Russian activities had on the outcome of the 2016 election, The New York Times weighed in at over 10,000 words in September 2017 with its own verdict. And the Times said, well, the Times headline read, The Plot to Subvert an Election. The first sentence described an obscure banner of Putin that unfurled on his birthday a few weeks before the election on a Manhattan bridge. The report quickly noted that the banner was promoted by a fake Twitter account that ultimately was traced back to the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, a privately owned troll operation in Russia. This was part, the New York Times concluded in the fourth paragraph, of the most effective foreign interference in an American election in history. To help buttress its sweeping conclusion, the New York Times wrote that the Facebook posts by the IRA, had an eventual audience of 126 million Americans, 
describing that as an impressive reach that almost matched the numbers of voters in the election. For most of the media and official Washington, the impact of Russian activities in the 2016 election loomed large, though a number of rigorous academic studies that the media largely ignored painted a more benign footprint. Gareth Porter, a veteran journalist and historian, called the Times' description of the IRA's eventual audience of 126 million bogus because Facebook had told Congress and reporters months earlier that the figure was only a potential audience for IRA content over two years, including nine months after the election. When Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified several months before the piece ran, he said approximately 126 million people may have been served content from the IRA. Facebook data submitted to Congress about the IRA's ads on its site further diminished their impact. More than half of the impressions associated with the IRA's Facebook ads came after the election. Porter, writing in Consortium News, said the New York Times' use of the 126 million audience number, plus the piece's failure to reflect that Facebook users were exposed to 33 trillion news feeds during the relevant period, should vie in the annals of journalism as one of the most spectacularly misleading use of statistics of all time. As for the IRA's supposed efficiency, noted in the article, the New York Times piece didn't include Facebook submissions to Congress that called the IRA's targeting relatively rudimentary, with only a small fraction having anything to do with the election or specific geographic targets. Court filings in 2019 show that the total value of the IRA's Facebook ads that were deemed election-related amounted to less than $3,000. In a political cycle where billions of dollars were spent, the only reporter to write about that finding was Paul Sperry of Real Clear Investigations. Even before that, though, studies largely ignored by the media pointed to a more modest impact. A book by Harvard researchers called Network Propaganda, published by Oxford University Press, October 2018, found strong evidence of Russian interference operations in America, but noted that evidence of its impact is scant. A study by Danish and American scholars published by the National Academy of Science the following year found no evidence that interaction with the IRA accounts substantially impacted the political attitudes and behaviors of Twitter users. So there's nothing there. You know, Joe Biden says there's no there there, but there's really no there there on this. But I digress. The deep dive by Harvard researchers warned that overstating the impact of Russian information operations helps consolidate the aim of the operations to disorient American political communications Still, several years after the 2016 election, many voters believe Russian meddling had a big impact on those results, and the mainstream narrative in journalism was that it had. A study by Rasmussen in April 2022 found that 47% of voters, including 72% of Democrats, think Russian interference likely changed the outcome of the 2016 race. Legal developments involving people in Trump's orbit 
kept the Russian narrative simmering. In late November 2018, Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, pleaded guilty to lying to Congress about attempts by Trump to conduct a real estate deal in Moscow. Cohen had told both intelligence committees of Congress that the Moscow project ended in January 2016, but documents show he was in communication with others, though not Trump, about the project through June 2016, according to the criminal information filed by the special counsel. The project never happened, but the media viewed the attempt as more evidence of Russian ties. After all, Cohen was once a Trump insider, so many in the press saw his cooperation with Mueller as a chance to fill in some of the missing pieces of the puzzle. Did Cohen really go to Prague in 2016 as part of the campaign's conspiracy with Russia, as the dossier had alleged? Cohen had always denied it, and the press, except for the McClatchy News Service, had basically dismissed it as a tall tale after considerable efforts to verify it. Cohen, even as a cooperating witness, continued to deny it. McClatchy, in 2019, ran an editor's note saying Mueller's report states that Mr. Cohen was not in Prague, but was silent on whether Cohen's phone pinged in or near Prague as McClatchy reported, according to an account in the Washington Examiner. Aaron Maté, writing in The Nation in 2021, called the note tepid. Susan Fiery, a spokesperson for the newspaper chain, did not reply to an email. Gee, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. Why does that not surprise me? As 2019 arrived, BuzzFeed, the outlet that posted the dossier two years earlier, dropped a seeming bombshell. Trump had directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about the Moscow project. The story was attributed to two anonymous law enforcement sources. The special counsel's office issued a rare denunciation of the BuzzFeed story the next day, calling it not accurate. Mueller's final report said that Trump knew Cohen provided false testimony to Congress. But the evidence obtained by investigators does not establish the president directed or aided Cohen's false testimony. After the report was released, BuzzFeed's then-editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, insisted in a post that his reporters' anonymous sources saw it differently. They interpreted the evidence Cohen presented as meaning that the president directed Cohen to lie. When the original story was posted and then denounced, Glenn Greenwald, co-founder of The Intercept, used the brushback to list the 10 worst, most embarrassing U.S. media failures on the Trump-Russia story. He pointed out that all the errors went in the same direction, exaggerating the grave threat posed by Moscow and the Trump circle's connections to it. Meanwhile, the Mueller investigation was winding down. The inquiry had issued more than 2,800 subpoenas, interviewed 500 witnesses, and generated enormous interest. There were 533,000 news articles published involving Russia and Trump or Mueller. Between Mueller's appointment and the release of his report, according to a study by Newswhip, a media analytics company, the articles led to 245 million interactions on social media. The study, funded by the, the media site Axios, also found that. With the release of the findings imminent, 
William Barr was briefed on the inquiry, sat down with Mueller and his colleagues and learned of their two overarching conclusions. One, no case or conspiracy or collusion between the Russians and Trump, though there had been offers from Russian-affiliated individuals to help the Trump campaign. And two, 10 episodes that raised possible obstruction of justice issues, but no analysis or determination of whether they constituted a crime. Now, William Barr asked Robert Mueller and his team to promptly deliver their final report with the proper redactions, such as classified or grand jury information. The lengthy two volumes came back without the redactions. Wait, what? Without the redactions? So Barr, unfamiliar with the details, went about writing a letter to inform Congress of the top-line results. Barr sent his letter to Congress on March 24th. It said it was meant to summarize the principal conclusions reached by Mueller. With regard to possible obstruction, the letter noted the report presented evidence of both sides of the question, but left unresolved what Mueller had called difficult issues. The report specifically said it does not exonerate Trump, which Barr quoted in his letter. The th- oh, great. Yeah, that, that, that was a world of help. The three-page letter was released. Those hoping for Trump's downfall were disappointed. The president declared victory, tweeting bombastically about complete and total exoneration, and Mueller and his team cried foul. Their beef, it turns out, was at least in part with the media. Mueller's team wanted more information to be released. So did the media. One New York Times article wondered, quote, what Barr might have left out, unquote. Mueller's team forwarded summaries to Barr and attached a letter from Mueller stating that Barr's communique three days earlier did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusions. The letter quickly leaked to the Washington Post and was covered extensively by the media, which highlighted concerns that Barr had left out more damaging material, as the New York Times wrote. Well, the blowback really upset William Barr. He finally got Mueller on the phone after the special counsel returned from a haircut the morning of March 28, 2019. Over speakerphone, Mueller agreed that Barr's letter was not factually wrong but explained his concern to the Attorney General. Quote, Without more context, there is a vacuum that the press is filling with misrepresentations. It is the way the press is covering it that is the problem, not what you said. Unquote. That's according to William Barr's book. Two of Mueller's top aides, Aaron Zebley and James Quarles, did not respond to emails seeking comment. The next day, William Barr wrote another letter to Congress noting that some media reports and other public statements have mischaracterized his first letter as a summary of Mueller's investigation and report, when it was only a summary of the principal conclusions. He asked people to wait to read the whole report on their own and not in piecemeal fashion. Barr was now a villain to some, but not others, and new schisms in the media emerged over prior coverage. Michael Isikoff 
have previously begun having doubts about the credibility of the dossier. But William Barr's letter pushed him further down that road. He went on MSNBC soon after the letter's release and criticized the network for its coverage of the dossier, including its being, quote, endorsed multiple times, unquote, and having, quote, people saying it's more and more proving to be true and it wasn't, unquote. A few months later, on his own podcast, the Yahoo! journalist pressed Rachel Maddow about coverage of Russia and Steele's dossier. She was not happy. Rachel Maddow responded, You're trying to litigate the Steele dossier through me as if I am the embodiment of the Steele dossier, which I think is creepy and I think it's unwarranted. Isakoff says he's only been on MSNBC a few times since 2019, but before that he was a semi-regular guest. A few weeks after William Barr's letter, Mueller's report, now redacted and coming in at over 400 pages, was released. It consisted of two volumes. The first spelled out Russian meddling and links or contacts between Russians and Trump's universe, while the second contained the 10 instances of of possible obstruction. The report found multiple links between Trump campaign officials and individuals tied to the Russian government, including Russian offers of assistance to the campaign, which were sometimes welcomed and sometimes declined. In the end, the investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election activities of 2016. Now, the report mentions the 2018 indictment of 12 Russian intelligence officials charged with hacking data related to the Democrat Party and the Clinton campaign in 2016, though the report is far from definitive. First, it notes that the charged officers appear to have stolen thousands of emails and attachments. The report also says the investigators could not rule out that stolen documents were transferred to WikiLeaks through intermediaries. The case has never been brought to trial, by the way. The first volume of the report also notes that the Russian government intervened in the 2016 election in, quote, sweeping and systemic fashion, unquote, through two activities. The hacking and dumping operation involving Clinton campaign-related emails and a social media campaign run by a Russian entity, the IRA. The report implied the IRA was a government-controlled body by writing that it was part of an active measures campaign typically done by Russian security services. Now, coming up, I want to tell you how most of the media responded to all of this. Okay, would you like to save money on your monthly cell phone bill while doing the right thing? Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Unlike AT&T, which owns DirecTV and got rid of One American News last year and got rid of Newsmax just the other day, Patriot Mobile is the real deal. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving money. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, 
you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just go to PatriotMobile.com like I did or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT and make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. PatriotMobile.com or just call them at 972-PATRIOT. Use promo code DOC, D-O-C, for free activation. I love sharing with people the best-kept secret in American healthcare because I like helping people. So let me ask something. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo? How about problems with your blood sugar? How about fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you even if you don't live in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. I had bad migraines year-round. I got my atlas adjusted, the migraines went away, and have never come back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, psoriasis, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. If you're outside Arkansas, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You, and I sure hope you can. Now, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop Factory Direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created with regular folks like you and me in mind. 
One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We're done with the woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned Made in America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now, an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the mountains near Yellowstone, the beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics or hormones or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. SwitchToAmerica.com. All right, now let's take a look as we continue with the fourth and final chapter of the press versus the president. The article... Part four, the article or the chapter in part four, which is entitled Helsinki and the $3,000 Russian disinformation campaign. In other words, we already talked about how Russia spent less than $3,000 on Facebook during the 2016 election campaign. And yet, the people going after Trump were acting like that was a big deal. Now, Talking about the Mueller report now. For the most part, the media, having already learned that there was no overarching conspiracy, fleshed out the new details, including the more than 100 links cited by Mueller. The most troubling contact involved Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign chairman for part of 2016, and Kalimnik, who ran Manafort's consulting business office in Ukraine. On August 2nd, 2016, the two men met in Manhattan where Manafort shared campaign polling data, some private and some public, with Kalimnik. The Mueller report said Kalimnik is someone that the, quote, FBI assesses to have ties to Russian intelligence, unquote. Mueller indicted Kalimnik in 2018 for obstruction of justice unrelated to the 2016 election, but the case has never gone forward. Now, that's interesting because it's been over four years. Oh, man. But I digress. Andrew Weissman, one of Mueller's prosecutors, went on CNN after the release of the Mueller report to say that August meeting was the heart of the investigation. Well, then why didn't the indictment go forward, Andrew? Christopher Steele, in response to my questions, cites the Manafort-Kalimnik relationship as confirming and or corroborating what he called the Russian collusion efforts with the Trump campaign. 
What a joke. The fifth and final report of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, released in August 2020, highlighted the connection as a single most important direct tie between senior Trump campaign officials and the Russian intelligence services and labeled it a grave counterintelligence threat to the United States. Some of the Democrat members of the panel in an addendum wrote wrote that Paul Manafort's sharing of campaign data is what collusion looks like. But the evidence of Kalimnik's Kremlin ties is far from certain, and the question of whether Manafort's dealings with him were personal or campaign-related are even murkier. As for Kalimnik possibly being a Russian spy, the only known official inquiry by Ukraine in 2016 did not result in charges. More recent claims that he worked for the Russians by the Senate Intelligence Panel in 2020 and the Treasury Department in 2021 offer no evidence. Conversely, there are FBI and State Department documents showing Kalimnik was a sensitive source for the latter. Really? He was a sensitive source for the State Department? The documents were disclosed a few years ago by John Solomon, founder of the Just the News website. Kalimnik, in an email to me, confirmed his ties with the State Department. With regard to the motivation for sharing the polling data, Robert Mueller's report said it could not reliably determine why the data was shared or what happened with it. The two Americans involved in the arrangement, Paul Manafort and his deputy, both told Mueller's team that the data was passed on to help Paul Manafort's personal finances, including a business dispute with Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who has had ties to Moscow as well as having ties to the FBI. Kalimnik told a similar version to journalist Aaron Matei over the nation. But Treasury Department, without any supporting evidence, went further in 2021 saying the data was shared with Russian intelligence. Really, without any supporting evidence. That's fascinating. All right, now. Chapter 5, The Scandal That Never Ends. The New York Times for many years has cited the Kalimnik Manafort relationship to defend its controversial story of February 2017 about Trump-Russia ties, noting as recently as 2021 that the Senate and Treasury statements confirm the article's findings. Kalimnik was not quoted in the article, one of several New York Times articles in recent years, mentioning his possible Russian intelligence ties, but failing to report his denials. The New York Times guidelines call for reporters to seek and publish a response from anyone criticized in our pages, but they didn't do it. The Times, in response to my question, said it reached out to Kalimnik for comment on multiple occasions since 2017. The Mueller report's implication that the IRA was part of a sweeping Russian government meddling campaign in 2016 was later rebuked by a federal judge handling an IRA-related case. 
The indictment of the IRA, the judge found, alleged only private conduct by private actors and does not link the IRA to the Russian government. The prosecutors made clear they were not prepared to show that the IRA efforts were a government operation. Mueller's report does refer to, quote, ties, unquote, between Putin and the owner of the IRA. He is sometimes referred to as Putin's cook and the fact that the two have appeared together in public photographs. Mueller's source for that was an article in the New York Times. Oh, my goodness, like dogs chasing their tails. But I digress. As for the extent of the Troll Farms activity, Mueller's report cites a review by Twitter of tweets from accounts, quote, associated with the IRA, unquote, and the 10 weeks before the 2016 election, which found that approximately 8.4% were election-related. Okay, now wait. That would mean that 91.6% were not election-related. According to a Nexus search, only the St. Louis Post-Dispatch covered that part of the report. Now, one criminal case involving Russian trolling that was prosecuted was dropped by the Justice Department in March 2020. The New York Times, in its story about the decision, only quoted the prosecutor while the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post also included quotes from the Russian company's American lawyer. While some critics, on both the right and the left, felt the Russia coverage was overblown and reminiscent of earlier media failures, others did not. Margaret Sullivan, then the media columnist for the Washington Post, wrote that the reporting was not invalidated by the report, and this is no time to retreat. Oh, I see. Trump's Democrat opponents in Congress were in no media were in no mood to retreat either. And many Americans, mostly Democrats, agreed. An Ipsos Reuters poll showed 48% of Americans, 84% of Democrats, and only 17% of Republicans still believed Trump or his campaign worked with Russia to influence the 2016 election. Congressional Democrats saw Mueller's report, specifically the second volume on possible obstruction of justice, as a template to impeach the president. Their star witness would be Don McGahn, the former White House counsel who became the most cited witness in Mueller's final report. McGahn's account of Trump directing him to fire Mueller was featured in the report. So were two high-profile examples that Mueller, according to William Barr, relied on to launch his obstruction probe. The president's firing of Comey in May 2017 and Trump's remarks to Comey in February 2017, the day after Flynn resigned, that, quote, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go, unquote. From a criminal perspective, the cases had complications, especially proving Trump acted with corrupt intent, according to William Barr, who, with other senior attorneys at Justice, reviewed the evidence and found it to be insufficient that Trump acted with corrupt intent. In the case of McGahn, William Barr, in an interview, said that, A lot of witnesses, including McGahn and others, tried to convey that no one took a lot of Trump's bloviating seriously. They thought he was letting off steam. McGahn himself had told Mueller's investigators he believed the president never obstructed justice. The New York Times would later report on that. Schmidt, perhaps a reporter with the best insight into Mueller's operation, 
found the report section on possible obstruction to be hard to decipher. In early 2020, he told the Virginia Bar Association they took everything and threw it out on the sidewalk, according to a video recording. The Democrat-controlled Congress, however, thought it might be able to pick up those disparate pieces and fashion an impeachment case. They decided to push a reluctant Robert Mueller to come testify himself, hoping he might help make their case. So Mueller appeared in late July 2019 before the House Judiciary Committee. Schmidt was contemporaneously posting analysis on the New York Times website about Mueller's testimony. Just past 8 in the morning, he signed in, saying, Can't wait to hear Mueller talk about Volume 2 on obstruction. As Mueller began answering questions, Schmidt noted how he kept asking for them to be repeated. Then a few hours later, he posted this, quote, The Democrats say it was indeed obstruction and Mueller declines to back them up, unquote. Mueller's halting testimony, as noted by the New York Times and many other outlets, was likely the final chapter in his lengthy public life. Bob Woodward told me the Mueller report was a fizzle, but reporters were never going to declare it's going to end up dry. The following morning, less than 18 hours after Mueller left the congressional hearing, a more confident Trump had his phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in which he asked him for help in digging up dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden. What Trump thought was a perfect phone chat turned out to be the impeachment vehicle Democrats so desperately wanted after Mueller's far from perfect performance. A new media frenzy was about to begin. Chapter 6, The Two January 6th. Even with Mueller finished, the ongoing probes into Trump's activities were giving the press the fodder to keep the drumbeat going. First was the appointment in May 2019 of John Durham, a career prosecutor, once praised by his home state Democrat senators in Connecticut to examine the origins of the various Trump inquiries. Then came a lengthy and critical report released in December 2019 by Inspector General Michael Horowitz into the secret surveillance of former Trump advisor Carter Page. And in early 2020, William Barr asked Jeffrey Jensen, a former FBI agent and the U.S. attorney in Missouri, to review the Michael Flynn inquiry. John Durham, stalled by the pandemic, has brought three cases. A guilty plea by an FBI lawyer, That would have been Kevin Kleinsmith, who changed an email that um, the CIA had said Carter Page did work for them, and he changed it to show that Carter Page didn't. Got a slap on the hand. But I digress. An indictment and eventual acquittal, a Democrat lawyer, Michael Sussman, for lying to the FBI. Yeah, D.C. jury acquitted him. What a shock. But I digress. And an indictment and eventual acquittal on multiple charges of lying to the FBI, the main information collector for the dossier authored by Christopher Steele. Again, D.C. jury, what do you expect? The few cases, however, yielded a trove of new information. Durham's filings last February, February of 2022, 
described monitoring done at Trump Tower, a Trump apartment building in Manhattan, and the executive office of the presidency by private researchers who were working with a technology executive. The executive, according to the filing, gave them the task of mining Internet data to establish an inference and narrative tying then-candidate Trump to Russia. The businessman did not work for any campaign, but his lawyer, Sussman, was a well-known Democrat attorney who billed both the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, according to court filings. Fox News was the first to pick up the filing, and its headline, Clinton campaign paid to infiltrate Trump Tower White House servers to link Trump to Russia, Durham finds. Conflated Durham's disclosure with a quote by someone who used the word infiltrate to characterize the activities. Before long, Trump claimed the filing vindicated his 2017 claim of spying, the tweet about Obama having his wires tapped at Trump Tower, also drawn from a Fox News report. And he criticized the press for refusing to even mention the major crime that took place, Trump's words. At that point, the New York Times weighed in, headlining the furor in right-wing outlets whose narrative is off-track. It accurately noted that neither infiltrate nor evidence of the Clinton campaign paying the tech executive actually appeared in the court filing. The Fox News journalist who wrote the story, Brooke Singman, and a spokesperson for the network did not respond to an email. Singman was the first journalist Trump spoke to after the unannounced search of his Mar-a-Lago residence by the FBI in August. One result of Durham's investigation has been to further discredit the dossier in the eyes of many in the media. It prompted the Washington Post to retract large chunks of a 2017 article in November 2021 and to follow with a long review of Christopher Steele's sources and methods. The Wall Street Journal and even CNN did similar looks back. The New York Times, though, has offered no such retraction. Though the paper and other news organizations were quick to highlight the lack of first-hand evidence for many of the dossier's substantive allegations. Third-hand stuff is what Michael Isikoff now calls them, but they rarely, if ever, pointed out that the origin of the FBI inquiry was itself third-hand information at best. The supposed original source of the information, Mifsud, the Maltese academic, disappeared, leaving behind so many questions. So in the fall of 2019, William Barr and John Durham went to Italy to look into Mifsud. After Barr told Congress he wanted to know whether the FBI inquiry was properly predicated. In other words, did you have a predicate, probable cause to even investigate in the first place? Trump, Russia. And, of course, they didn't. The New York Times story called the trip unusual and a possible attempt to bolster a Trump conspiracy theory. The Daily Beast reported that the two men were given access to evidence gathered by the Italian authorities, including a taped deposition made by Mifsud when he sought police protection after disappearing from the university where he worked. By the end of the year, Barr answered his own question. No, the FBI inquiry was not properly predicated. 
he and Durham wound up in an unusual public spat that December with the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, Michael Horowitz, as he released his long-awaited report on the FBI's handling of its Russia investigation. Horowitz found the tip from Australia was enough to trigger an inquiry, quote, given the low threshold for predication, unquote, in department guidelines, and that the opening was not influenced by political bias, countering Trump's frequent cries that he was the victim of a political witch hunt. But the IG also found 17 significant errors and omissions by the FBI in its four applications to a secret court to to monitor Carter Page, who the Bureau believed was spying for Russia. The Times called the Inspector General's finding scathing. Eventually, the FBI declared that at least two of the four applications were no longer valid. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA Court, found that all four applications had violations of the government's duty of candor. In other words, they lied to the FISA court. The FBI lied to the FISA court to get warrants to do surveillance on this Carter Page guy who was a volunteer for Trump. Horowitz also referred an FBI attorney, Kevin Kleinsmith, we referred to him a little bit ago, to Durham for possibly falsifying evidence in one of the court applications. Kleinsmith later pleaded guilty to failing to disclose Page's previous work with the CIA in the FBI's application to the FISA court, he received probation. He should have gone to jail for double digits. But I digress. Barr and Durham put out statements disagreeing with the Inspector General's finding of there being sufficient evidence to open the inquiry. Peter Strzok, in an interview July of 2022, called John Durham's remarks wildly irresponsible and wrong. Durham did not respond to an email seeking comment But in arguments before a jury last October, speaking about the Trump-Russia investigation, he said the FBI failed here. Peter Strzok also said he was only involved in the first FISA warrant against Carter Page, having supervisory responsibility, but the drafting and approval process was, quote, below my level of responsibility, unquote. In an October 2016 text message, He wrote that he was fighting with the Justice Department over the warrant. In the years that followed, some in the media would wonder why more questions weren't asked about Durham's evidence, while others continued to dismiss the notion that the FBI acted improperly when it opened an investigation that involved the presidential campaign. On his way out the door as Attorney General, William Barr told a Wall Street Journal columnist that the inquiry should not have been opened because, quote, there wasn't any evidence, unquote. The New York Times dismissed those remarks. After quoting William Barr, the paper wrote that the FBI inquiry has faced similar unfounded accusations that a so-called deep state of government officials was working together to hobble Mr. Trump's campaign and the administration. A few months later, the New York Times wrote that Durham quote, appears to be retreading ground, unquote, explored by Inspector General Harwitz, or pursuing, quote, Trumpian conspiracy theories and grievances, unquote, citing unnamed, quote, people familiar with the investigation, unquote. Eric Wimple, media critic over the Washington Post, 
focused on the Inspector General's dossier-related revelations and the reluctance of some in the media to look back. In an interview, he said he was horrified over its devastating portrayal of the dossier. He wound up writing more than a dozen columns on the subject, praising Adam Goldman of the New York Times, but taking aim at McClatchy, CNN, and MSNBC, among others. He said, what most dismayed me was the failure of MSNBC and CNN to counter and properly address the questions I was asking them. CNN, November 2021, did a long examination, what it called a reckoning of the dossier. A spokesman for NBC declined to comment. In May 2020, the Justice Department dropped the case against Michael Flynn for lying to the FBI after a review by Jensen, U.S. attorney in St. Louis. The department cited the FBI's frail and shifting justifications for its ongoing probe of Mr. Flynn and said that the FBI interview of Flynn was conducted without any legitimate investigative basis. Right. Flynn was eventually pardoned by President Trump after the election. Trump also commuted the sentence of Roger Stone, a Trump associate, who was convicted on false statement and obstruction charges related to his efforts in 2016 to serve as an intermediary between the campaign and WikiLeaks. According to the New York Times, Mueller failed to resolve the question of whether Roger Stone had directly communicated with Julian Assange, the founder of the WikiLeaks site, before the election. In 2020, the 966-page report by the Senate Intelligence Panel went a little further. It said that WikiLeaks very likely knew it was assisting a Russian intelligence influence effort when it acquired and made public in 2016 emails from the DNC. A few months after the report was released, new information surfaced showing why the special counsel with greater investigative powers than the Senate panel couldn't bring a case. The newly unredacted documents were obtained by BuzzFeed via a Freedom of Information Act request. The Mueller team, the documents show, determined that while Russian hacking efforts were underway at the time of the releases by WikiLeaks in July 2016, the office did not develop sufficient admissible evidence that WikiLeaks knew of or even was willfully blind to that fact. The Senate report also suggests Roger Stone had greater involvement with the dissemination of hacked material released by WikiLeaks. The Flynn release was part of a months-long effort by the Justice Department to declassify and release documents related to the Trump-Russia inquiries. One revelation concerned the dossier's primary source. He himself had been the subject of an earlier counterintelligence investigation by the FBI into his ties to Russia. Nothing came of that inquiry. And the FBI documents sent to Republicans in Congress redacted his name. But Internet sleuths used the new documents and other clues to identify him as Igor Danchenko. The New York Times was interested in the so-called unmasking. Its headline in late July read, The FBI pledged to keep a source anonymous. Trump allies aided his unmasking. Then, in October, the paper got an exclusive interview with Danchenko saying he wants to clear his name. The top of the story featured the salacious sex tape allegation, the item James Comey told Trump about on January 6, 2017, 
and Danchenko's supposed backup for it. Rumors from two sources and more nebulous information from two hotel employees he took as corroborative. In other words, they made it up. But I digress. The day after the New York Times article, Danchenko and his friends used the piece to help a GoFundMe campaign on his behalf. Danchenko was found not guilty of lying to the FBI last October. Then, a mirror image of the Trump-Russia story surfaced after the New York Post ran a series of stories disclosing raunchy details of Hunter Biden's private life, as well as inside correspondence related to his business dealings in Ukraine and China. It came from the contents of his laptop, said to have been abandoned in 2019 at a computer repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware. The first story included photos of a federal grand jury subpoena seeking production of the laptop and an external hard drive. Reporters who ferreted out the details of the FBI inquiry into Trump's campaign couldn't or wouldn't confirm the Justice Department investigation into Biden's son. Whereas the specter of purported Russian ties to Trump spurred an explosion of social media and journalistic interest. This time, Twitter and Facebook temporarily curbed the reach of the Post story. In other words, they sat on it. They buried it. But I digress. The Post stories said the laptop had been seized by the FBI, but a copy of its contents had been made by the owner of the computer repair shop where Biden had dropped it off but had never retrieved it. The material wound up with... Rudy Giuliani, former New York City mayor and Trump confidant, and he had shared it with the New York Post. Hunter Biden's attorney, in a statement to the New York Post, did not deny the contents of the laptop, but attacked Giuliani, who had helped Trump in the Mueller inquiry and his impeachment over Ukraine. Hunter's attorney, George Masiris, told the New York tabloid, He has been pushing widely discredited conspiracy theories about the Biden family openly relying on actors tied to Russian intelligence. In short order, James Clapper, Obama's former head of national intelligence, told CNN, where he is a national security analyst, that the laptop saga, quote, is just classic textbook Soviet Russian tradecraft at work, unquote. Most outlets wrote stories about the matter, but unable to obtain or verify copies of the laptop data, stayed away from deep dives into the underlying transactions and relationships. The New York Times did explore one proposed deal with a Chinese energy company that had been the focus of a New York Times report in 2018. But Tom Friedman, a New York Times columnist, told CNBC's Squawk Box show last July that the paper believed it didn't do enough. He said, I know the New York Times felt it didn't pursue it originally as much as it wanted to, but then it followed up, as I recall. The New York Times said in a statement, dating back years and more recently, the New York Times has reported consistently and fairly on Hunter Biden's personal and financial entanglements. In the wake of the New York Post story, Democrat Congressman Adam Schiff went on CNN to claim the origins of this whole smear are from the Kremlin. Around this time, a group of more than 50 former intelligence and national security officials 
were preparing a statement linking the laptop story to Russia, saying it, quote, has all the classic hallmarks of a Russian information operation, unquote. In short order, the letter was given to Natasha Bertrand, then a reporter for Politico, and now at CNN, by Nick Shapiro, a former aide to John Brennan, Obama's last CIA director. Brennan signed the letter. I left a message on Brennan's cell phone. Shapiro returned the call. Neither would comment on the record. The headline on Bertrand's story read, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former intel officials say. The letter and Bertrand's story at Politico made clear the signers were relying on their experience, but not on evidence. They wrote, quote, we do not have evidence of Russian involvement, unquote. But it was good enough to be picked up in dozens of news reports, tweeted by Biden's campaign, and cited by Biden himself in his final debate with Trump, which attracted 63 million television viewers. The two candidates sparred over Russia, with Trump comparing his tougher record on Russia, such as sanctions, to that of his predecessor when Biden was vice president. Biden shot back telling Trump, quote, Russia is paying you a lot, unquote. Trump brought up what he called the laptop from hell, which prompted Biden to cite the letter from the former intelligence officials saying they called his accusations a Russian plan and a bunch of garbage. Trump asked his opponent in the final debate, you mean the laptop is now another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? Biden replied, that's exactly what we've been told. Trump ended the brouhaha by saying, here we go again with Russia. A majority of Americans told pollsters that the media did a poor job of covering the Hunter Biden affair, according to a December 2020 survey by Rasmussen Reports and a poll last year by the New Jersey-based Technometrica Institute of Policy and Politics. After the election, Trump refused to acknowledge the results, seeing them as the latest chapter in the hoax or witch hunt that began with Russia. He also stopped listening to advisors like William Barr, who wrote in his book that, quote, Trump thought I was to blame, unquote, for Biden's deception at the debate about Hunter's laptop. Barr, once the whipping boy for Democrats for what they thought was too much fealty to Trump, was a star witness against the former president in some of the hearings into January 6. As Trump became more isolated and undeterred by court rulings and news accounts that shot down his claims the election was rigged, no, no, excuse me, again, this guy's a lib. There were no news accounts that shot down his claims the election was rigged. If you think Joe Biden got 81 million votes, I'm sorry, you're in fantasy land. And this guy has done a great job up until right there. Uh, 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 an amazingly un, unexpected job of trying to be objective for a liberal mainstream media reporter up until right there. But all of a sudden, he puts his blinders on. Anyway, he says, as Trump became more isolated and undeterred by court rulings and news accounts, he listened to people who, like him, had been caught up in the Russia inquiry. One was Giuliani and another was Flynn. The New York Times will soon provide its own take on Flynn's journey. The paper wrote shortly after Trump left office, 
It was the story of the Russia investigation as a malevolent plot that first began priming tens of millions of Americans to believe Mr. Trump's conspiracy theories about the deep state. As one of the heroes of that narrative, Mr. Flynn became an ideal messenger when it was refashioned into the demonstrably false claim that Democrats and their deep state allies had rigged the election, unquote. This is so stupid. Time magazine did a 20-page cover story, February of 2021, detailing exactly how they rigged the election. They just said, oh, well, we didn't rig it. We had to fortify it because we couldn't afford America to go through another four years of Donald Trump. Anyway, Jeff Gerth here says a message seeking an interview with Flynn sent to America's Future, the Florida-based group he chairs, went unanswered. Okay, well, I got one up on uh, Jeff Gerth then. Okay? Because I have an interview scheduled with General Flynn for Tuesday, February 14th at noon central. So somehow, by the grace of God, I've got one up on Jeff Kurth. Anyway, on January 6, 2021, Trump's legacy in most of the media and elsewhere was sealed. Some of Trump's most devoted supporters who also believed in his unsubstantiated claims of a rigged election. What a liar! Unsubstantiated. What a liar! Some of Trump's most devoted supporters went wild, as Trump had predicted, in a December tweet, leaving a dark stain on the Capitol and the country. Okay, so he has no intellectual curiosity as to what actually happened to the Capitol on January 6, 2021. No intellectual curiosity about the fact that these were peaceful protesters, that agents provocateur from our intel community weave their way in, that police started shooting flashbang grenades, metal canisters, and noxious tear gas at people just standing around not doing any violence. And you know what? Bet this guy's never heard of Ray Epps. I'll bet he's never heard of Ray Epps. Okay, let's see what else garbage he has here. A member of the Hawaii Proud Boys group scratched murder the media on the Capitol's memorial door while others chanted CNN sucks. Okay, so he has no idea that's already been reported that federal assets were embedded in the Proud Boys. That came out in court recently. A photographer was thrown to the floor and had her camera ripped away after people in the crowd saw that she worked for the New York Times. Again, over a year ago, Senator Ted Cruz, Senate Judiciary Committee, had the FBI, the assistant director of the FBI in charge of counterterrorism under oath, and asked her if any federal assets committed crimes of violence on January 6, 2021. She said, I can't answer that question. Asked her how many federal assets were in the crowd that day. I can't answer that question. Asked her, was Ray Epps a Fed? Can't answer that question. And bless his heart, Jeff Gerth doesn't know any of this? Doesn't have any idea? According to the Washington Post, 11 protesters have been charged in connection with assaults on journalists or destruction of their equipment. Okay, almost everybody gets found guilty by D.C. juries, 94% Biden voters, no matter what they're charged with, with or without evidence. 
But he, he's not going to get into that either, is he? New York Times photographer Erin Schaff feared for her life, describing her attackers as really angry in an account she wrote for the paper. Trump, in an interview in early August last year, said he never wanted to see that happen, referring to the violence that day when I asked him if he had any regrets about January 6th. Of course he didn't want to see that happen. He said peacefully. Of course he didn't want to see that happen. The attack came four years to the day after the fateful briefing by James Comey where he recounted the most salacious allegation in the now discredited dossier. I raised with Trump the coincidence of January 6th being bookends of a sort to his tenure. His face lit up. He said that was a famous day. The 6th seems to be a big thing. When I asked what mistakes he made, he paused before offering two examples. The first traces back to the Russia probe and the second to the 2020 election. Referring to the first attorney general who recused himself from the Russia inquiry, he said Jeff Sessions was a mistake. He explained he had been to Washington only 17 times in my life, and I never stayed over, so when I got there, I didn't know any people in Washington. As a result, he said he made some poor personnel decisions, such as Jeff Sessions. He went on, what I do regret is that the Republicans didn't have the apparatus to stop the crooked vote in 2020. Jeff Girth says, as I left his office, Trump insisted I take an account of an audit of Arizona's votes in 2020, which he told me was finding all these ballots and phantom votes. He says, on my way out, he made a last-minute call to ensure he was getting French fries with his dinner. I headed to my car, past the Secret Service detail, along the beautiful, lush contours of his golf course, and watched the darkness begin to descend. Then, Jeff Girth has a brief, what he calls, afterward. This should be interesting. An afterward to this long article that has taken four episodes of the Doc Washburn Show to share with you. He says, I've avoided opining in my more than 50 years as a reporter. This time, however, I felt obligated to weigh in. Why? Because I'm worried about journalism's declining credibility and society's increasing polarization. The two trends, I believe, are intertwined. He says, my main conclusion is that journalism's primary missions, informing the public and holding powerful interests accountable, have been undermined by the erosion of journalistic norms and the media's own lack of transparency about its work. This combination adds to people's distrust about the media and exacerbates frayed political and social differences. One traditional journalistic standard that wasn't always followed in the Trump-Russia coverage is the need to report facts that run counter to the prevailing narrative. Boy, does he have it right there. No, I'm calling the balls and strikes. If he's got it right, I'll tell you. In January 2018, for example, the New York Times ignored a publicly available document showing that the FBI's lead investigator didn't think, after 10 months of inquiry into possible Trump-Russia ties, that there was much there. This omission disserved New York Times readers. The paper says its reporting was thorough 
and, quote, in line with our editorial standards, unquote. My last reporting project for the New York Times in 2005 was an inquiry into U.S. propaganda efforts abroad. I interviewed a former top CIA expert on behavior and propaganda, Gerald Post, who told me that leaving important information out of a broadcast or story lowers public trust in the messenger because consumers inevitably find the missing information somewhere else. And Gerald Post, who died a few years ago, spoke before the arrival of social media. Another axiom of journalism that was sometimes neglected in the Trump-Russia coverage was the failure to seek and reflect comment from people who are the subject of serious criticism. The New York Times guidelines call it a special obligation. Yet in stories by the New York Times involving such disparate figures as Joseph Massoud, the academic from Malta who supposedly started the whole FBI inquiry, Christopher Steele, the former British spy who authored the dossier, and Konstantin Kilimnik, the consultant cited by some as the best evidence of collusion between Russia and Trump, the New York Times reporters failed to include comment from the person being criticized. The Times, in a statement, says some of the subjects were approached on occasion, yet the paper's guidelines also call for their comments to be published. Another exhibit is a familiar target, anonymous sources I've used them myself, including sparsely in this piece. What's different in the Trump era, however, is both the volume of anonymous sources and the misleading way they're often described. One frequent and vague catchphrase people or person familiar with is widely used by many journalists. The New York Times used it over a thousand times in stories involving Trump and Russia between October 2016 and the end of his presidency, according to a Nexus search. The last executive editor I worked for, Bill Keller, frowned on its use. He told the staff repeatedly the phrase was so vague it could even mean the reporter. The New York Times, in a statement to Columbia Journalism Review, said, we have strong rules in place governing the use of anonymous sources. Other outlets mentioned in this piece declined to discuss their anonymous sourcing practices. Another anonymous sourcing convention that was turbocharged in the Trump era was the use of more neutral descriptors like government official or intelligence official or American official to mask congressional leakers. A few reporters admitted that to me, but of course only anonymously. Here's how it works. First, a federal agency like the CIA or FBI secretly briefs Congress. Then, Democrats or Republicans selectively leak snippets. Finally, the story comes out using vague attribution. Mike Cortan, the former FBI spokesman until 2018, told me it was a problem for for us. Cortan, who also worked in Congress, added, we would brief Congress, try and give them a full picture with the negative stuff, and then a member of Congress can cherry-pick the information and the reporter doesn't know they've been cherry-picked. The the typical reader or viewer is clueless. My final concern and frustration was the lack of transparency by media organizations in responding to my questions. I reached out to more than 60 journalists. Only about half of them responded. Of those who did, more than a dozen agreed to be interviewed on the record. However, not a single major news organization made available 
a newsroom leader to talk about their coverage. Not one. My reporting has been criticized by journalists. From the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal in the 1980s to Harper's Magazine in the 1990s and the Daily Beast in the 2000s. When I've had the opportunity to respond, which hasn't always been the case, I've tried to engage. On a few occasions, I concluded the inquiring reporter wasn't really open to what I had to say, so I let my story speak for itself. But during this time, when the media is under extraordinary attack and widely distrusted, a transparent, unbiased, and accountable media is more needed than ever. It's one of a journalist's best tools to distinguish, to distinguish themselves from all the misinformation, gossip, and rumor that proliferates on the web and then gets legitimized on occasion by politicians of all stripes, including Trump. Most Americans, 60%, say they want unbiased news sources. Yet 86% think the media is biased. The consequences of this mismatch are all too obvious. 83% of the audience for Fox News leans Republican, while 91% of the readers for the New York Times lean Democrat. Jennifer Cavanaugh, senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, told me of her concerns about what she calls news silos. She said, if you're only getting your news from one source, you're getting a skewed view, which increases polarization and crowds out the room for compromise because people base their views on these siloed news sources. She added, people don't have time to deal with nuance, so they settle on a position, and everything else tends to become unacceptable. Walter Lippmann wrote about these dangers in his 1920 book entitled Liberty and the News. Lippmann worried then that when journalists arrogate to themselves the right to determine by their own consciences what shall be reported and for what purpose, democracy is unworkable. That is the final installment of an amazing landmark article the Press versus the President by Jeff Girth, who was a reporter for the New York Times for 29 years. And it kind of looked like he gave them more criticism than anybody else. And that's in the Columbia Journalism Review. And, uh, I mean, 98% of it was great. When it got down to January 6th, it's clear he hadn't had a chance to, uh, either hadn't had a chance, hadn't had an opportunity, didn't have the intellectual curiosity to really dig into that story. But everything else, everything else, whether it agreed or disagreed with us, I thought was very well done, 98% very well done. And I'm thankful to have the platform to have been able to share it with you. All right, having said that, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. 
Brought to you by Red River Auto. Red River Auto, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Okay, this tweet of the day is kind of like a, a series. It starts off with a screenshot of Donald Trump on Truth Social saying, Remember in Helsinki when a third-rate reporter asked me essentially who I trusted more, President Putin of Russia or our, quote, intelligence, unquote, lowlifes? My instinct at the time was that we had really bad people in the form of James Comey, McCabe, whose wife was being helped out by Crooked Hillary while Crooked was under investigation, Brennan, Peter Strzok, whose wife is at the SEC, and his lover, Lisa Page, now Ed McGonigal, recently indicted, you know, and other slime to the list. Who would you choose, Putin or these misfits? So some guy, uh, Christian Vanderbrook, Oh, he's over the bulwark. So he's a Republican, calls himself a Republican, actually a Democrat. He says, he says, Trump's saying, I stand by my decision to side with Putin against the U.S. intelligence community. The great Hans Monkey at theepictimes.com responds, the intelligence community tried to take Trump down with a fake hoax. What is your point? Some guy named Paul Surivel, who calls himself a peace and climate activist. Oh, this ought to be great. Response to the great Hans Monkey, saying Trump, when asked whether Russia interfered in 2016 election, said correctly he didn't see why they would, and went on to convey Putin's offer to him to allow U.S. prosecutors to interrogate Mueller indictees if Russia could do the same here. And he has a link to a State Department article. The great Hans Monkey comes back and says, Mike Pompeo says that when he became CIA director, he found out there was zero evidence that Putin tried to get Trump elected. He says this fact was documented within the CIA. What he doesn't say is why he, Mike Pompeo, kept that information to himself for six years. And that is your tweet of the day. Thank you so much. Brought to you by Red River Auto. So, you've been listening to episode 338 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the Tenth. Well, that's the way it is. Saturday, February 4th, 2023.